0: Welcome to PIs Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Welcome back to PIs Declassified. I hope everyone had a safe and a happy July 4th. And for those listeners outside the United States, I hope you're all having a wonderful summer i like to keep you all apprised of significant upcoming conferences. And here are a couple of good ones. The 2017 annual meeting in uh, for the Council of International Investigators is going to be in Panama this year. Isn't that amazing? Panama, uh, September 12th to 16th. And if you're interested in attending that, that conference or want more information about that group, go to www. C-I-I-2 C-I-I-2.org And then there's the World Association of Detectives They're having their 92nd annual conference in New Delhi, India That conference will be October 10th through October 14th, 2017 And if you're interested in that organization or that conference go to www.wad.net wad.net. Okay, so today it's my pleasure to welcome Jared Larson. We're going to talk about that twelve-letter word called eavesdropping. Good morning, Jared. Good morning. Thank you for joining the show today. Very well, thank you. My pleasure. Jared, I know you're um, you're based in uh, Utica, New York. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I
2: got, uh, back in 2005, I got my bachelor's degree in something called economic crime investigation oh. out of, uh, Syracuse university. It was kind of sold to us as a white collar investigation or fraud investigation. And there was kind of two ways you could go about it. You could, you could get into the, uh, computer side or the, um, more accounting side of of fraud, and
3: mm-hmm.
2: so that was the degree I got. Uh, right, right there. I think it was two thousand five when I got the finally got the the degree. It was a bachelor's degree in Syracuse, and after that, I did an internship and then was looking for a position, and I found a a uh, somebody was looking for a private investigator to to do some work for them, and they asked for somebody with, you know, criminal justice background or a degree, and also somebody who knew about the insurance field. Well, I had also taken some courses on insurance. Mm -hmm. I was getting my degree, so I figured that was a good fit for me, and I applied, and I've been a private investigator ever since.
1: That's amazing. And, And you had never, had you ever thought about that prior to then? Uh, I mean,
2: growing up, you kind of run that idea through your head. It seems like a cool, cool gig to to be a private investigator. You see TV shows and, and, you know, you don't really have a good idea what it's about. But, you know, it sounds like something that would be cool to do. So nothing serious. But, yeah, growing up, I think every okay. kid kind of has that, that fantasy at one point or another.
1: And were you going to the university right out of high school, or, or did you work for a while, or how did that work?
2: Uh, I worked all through high school and all through college, but nothing related to criminal justice. Um,
1: uh-huh.
2: I My first real criminal justice gig was, well, I did an internship for, um, it was basically a division of the NIJ, uh, something called the Cyber Science Lab, we were doing computer forensic stuff, but after that, that's when I got into the PI work. But between mm-hmm. school and PI, really, really, there was no uh, no no criminal justice work. So I jumped right Well, into I
1: it. think what's really important about this, Jared, is there's there's just point out that there's more than one path to becoming a private investigator because, as you probably know, that. Probably a a very large percentage of private investigators are former law enforcement or former uh, in some kind of law enforcement, either government, um, so uh, so uh, secret service, FBI, local law local police departments, that kind of thing. And so, to show that you got a degree and then and and an internship and then got hired on as a private investigator shows a different path, and I think that's really important.
2: Yeah, yeah. I train a lot of private investigators, and I meet with a lot of investigators. And that's not usually the path that's taken. It's not usually straight from college to PI work. It's you know usually some kind of law enforcement, police officers. I've I've met with um, you know ex U.S. marshals and military. But but yeah, you're right. It's it's a little different to come straight from college to the PI world.
1: Yeah. And what would you say was a a surprise to you when you got into the field of private investigation? Was there anything that stands out as like, huh, I didn't know that was going on?
2: Well, what I was hired to do was mainly uh, insurance investigations. And a lot of that entailed surveillance for things like workers' compensation fraud where people are claiming that they're more injured than they are and you're trying to just document their behaviors out in public mm-hmm. and what their, what their you know, real range of motion is, what their real activity level is. So I did a lot of surveillance, and I I think everybody who starts doing surveillance for the first time isn't for a big surprise. It's not as easy as you think it is.
3: You <laughs> know, it's <laughs> Most really, really try- hard.
2: Yeah, most people drive around, and they're not looking in their rearview mirrors, and they're not paying attention to who's behind you and what's going on, because you're not doing anything wrong. You're doing your daily activities, your grocery shopping, what have you. But the people we're doing surveillance on, for one reason or another, are more suspicious. They're, they're up to no good, and they know that they're being watched, so... It's, and it's they, a lot harder they than know, you expect it to be.
1: Yeah, they know they're pulling a fast one.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. So you gotta be you gotta be cunning. And when I first started, I I wasn't that cunning. I was making mistakes left and right, and and that's something I find is common among just about everybody. Even when they come out of the the police force and then they start becoming PIs or the military, I got people who were uh, ex. Uh, um, Narcotics agents who would do undercover narcotics work and same thing—they get behind the wheel, they get their camera, and they think it's going to be a lot easier than it is, and they mm-hmm. get themselves into trouble. So,
1: so that was no what? What kind of mistakes uh, are the most common? Uh, usually, it's being too aggressive on the surveillance.
2: Being too aggressive meaning you're you're uh, parked uh, right out in front of their house and think they can't see you or you're following too closely <laughs> or <laughs> you you right. gotta you gotta be a little bit more discreet sometimes you can't you can't watch a uh, your, your target's house you have to stay back a ways and wait for them to leave and um follow right behind them and tailgating them for a half an hour and you're gonna they're gonna know you're there so you right. gotta, uh but the other mistake is then being too discreet that's some people are are just. <laughs> too standoffish, and they, they uh, won't catch the guy, the target, doing anything because, you know, they're parked miles away from the house, and they're not following them, and they're scared that at every moment they're going to get discovered, so they don't mm-hmm. take any risks, and so it's kind of a trade-off.
1: And and so, Jared, do you typically, or, or your firm typically, do a one-man, one-person surveillance, or are... are do you recommend more than one person? Because I know how difficult well, one person is.
2: I spent the, the 12 years since 2005, I've been doing uh, insurance work for, for a nationwide company. But then I, I got on my own business and I've been doing more of the domestic stuff. So mm-hmm. when I was doing the insurance work for that firm, it was usually one man surveillance um, at a cost savings to the client, really. I mean, two-man mm-hmm. surveillance is, is ideal, um, but not everybody's willing to pay for it at first. Usually, if you come back to them and say, you know, this, this guy is just extra suspicious or the, the layout of his neighborhood is extra hard, we need a second investigator. They can uh, make that decision whether it's worth their money or not Yeah, and put on another investigator.
1: Right. I don't. How large a city is Utica? Are you, um, is it a major metropolitan area? I'm not really familiar with that area.
2: Uh it's it's not very large. In fact, the, I set up my business and I put the office right in Syracuse, New York. People are more familiar with Syracuse than they are with Utica, and it's a bigger area. But okay. I do do some work in Utica still. Um, I'm calling you from Utica right now, but oh, okay. Syracuse
1: is uh, where my office is. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, and it is a major metropolitan area cuz that's always uh more difficult in trying to do moving surveillance at least in a uh area with a lot of traffic.
2: Yeah, and actually where we are in central New York, it is uh, we we have a wide range of, of you know, we go from very urban uh city areas to very rural country areas and you got to be able to do Surveillance in both because
3: mm, mm-hmm.
2: we got it all, we got fields with cows and cities with skyscrapers,
1: so yeah, yeah, for sure, okay, well, t- today um jared you we're going to talk about eavesdropping, and uh it's it's really an interesting subject because I think uh. The word eavesdropping sends off big, huge, loud bells and whistles to people when they hear the word. So, um, sure. but you have some—you have some interesting viewpoints uh, about eavesdropping. So, um, let's just start with um, what's legal and what's not legal. Sure. So.
2: When I talk about eavesdropping, uh, I wrote wrote an article about it, and what what I discussed was the 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 fact that there's different laws regarding uh, different jurisdictions, and specifically there's different state laws in each each state. So I think California, where you are, is what's known, I could be wrong, but is a two-party state. That's correct. And and New York, where I am, is a one-party state. Mm-hmm. So the basics, the basics behind that is a a one-party state is a state that allows people to record or listen in on a conversation with the consent of one of the parties in the conversation. So, for example, if I am speaking with um, my neighbor, um, Joe Smith, and I, I want to record our conversation, I could do that. Because I'm part of the conversation. I'm one of the parties, and I know I'm recording the conversation, and I've consented to my own recording, Mm -hmm. even if he doesn't know that the conversation is being recorded. Whereas in California, the two-party state, the rule is that they both have to be aware the conversation is being recorded.
1: Right, Um, and you have to um, have consent.
2: uh, Consent, yes. And the the country is basically... uh, a mixed match of, of these two general rules, uh, depending on which state you want, you're in, whether you can record a conversation or not. And, mm-hmm. um, and PIs have become aware of this general rule, and that, and that the terms one party state and two party state get thrown around a lot. Where if you're in New York, you, you call your state a one party state, and you know that you can record people if, if one of the parties consents.
3: And mm-hmm.
2: likewise, two-party two states, you know that you can't. And uh, there is an exception to this rule, which kind of makes, um, makes it legal for, for nobody to consent, or a zero-party state. And that's kind of what I got into in a article, recent article I wrote. Um,
1: yeah, and so there essentially is no designated no-party state.
2: No, no. In fact, yeah. the federal rule—if you would to go to the federal rule—that's a one, a one-party rule. So, uh, by federal guidelines, uh, you can. One person has to consent to the recording or the eavesdropping of a conversation. Now, obviously, if you're in a state that says you need two parties or all parties to record, that would uh, go over and above the federal rule. So. You still have to make sure which state you're you're in before you abide by the one party party. Which
1: brings which brings up another issue. If uh, if I'm in California and I'm in a two party state talking to somebody in New York, a one party state, I have to abide by my California rules and not the New York rules, correct?
2: Correct. In fact, when you call a a business, and maybe you call it. Uh, just trying to get a hold of uh, customer service, and most of the times, if it's a big enough business, and they're trying to record the conversation, they will always let you know that they're recording the conversation because they don't know where you're calling from, and they don't know if your state is a one-party state or a two-party state. So if you mm-hmm. call, you know, X Y Z phone company's customer service the first thing they're gonna do is say, you know, we are recording this conversation for quality and control purposes. That's to right. let you know that you're being recorded and that they're not so they don't violate this one party state. Even though they might be in a one party state, they still will let you know. Just to, just to keep themselves up and up if you're okay. in a two party state.
1: Okay. And if people have a question about which, which state Has one party in which state has two party. There is a website that you can go to.
3: Yeah,
2: to uh,
1: to check that out.
2: There's there's a lot of information out there. There's a a website I found. I don't have it in front of me now, but there was a website I found that that had some good information. Um, But even that might break down the states by one party and two party states, but. Even still, it's a good idea to get a good idea of what your specific state says because there are still variations to the rules depending on which state you're in. But
1: right, and laws can change. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And a lot of this is driven by case law, and case law is changing all the
3: time.
1: Well, before we get into case law, Jared, let's uh, we need to take a really quick break. Um, so our sponsors need to get a break here. I'll be right back with my guest, Jared Larson.
0: C-A-L-I
1: Jared and Larson and I are discussing eavesdropping, and Jared, you know, eavesdropping has a lot of definitions, really. I mean, when you think about, if you think about the word eavesdropping, think about what that means, it could be all kinds of things. It could be sitting in a restaurant, listening to the people next to you, and whatever they have to say, it could be... Um, it could be the old system of putting a glass to the wall and trying to hear what is on the <laughs> other side of that wall. Uh, there, there's all kinds of ways of eavesdropping. So we're limiting today our conversation about uh, phone recording. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yeah. Phone recording and uh, listening into phone conversations.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay, because, uh, you know, several years ago, maybe, I don't know, 15 or 16 years ago, there was a TV show called Snoops. Do you remember that show? What
0: this was about it two,
1: Snoops. Yes, I, I don't think went, I ever saw it, but I do recall. Yeah, it was two women, private investigators, and they would do things like go in to people's houses surreptitiously and plant Video and audio units in the houses. Now we're not talking about that kind of eavesdropping. No, no. uh,
2: We're talking. Well, we're talking about anything that would be would fall in the laws of eavesdropping. Every state has its own laws. uh, How it how it uh, describes what what eavesdropping is, but
1: okay, and and just to be. Just to make a statement here, going into somebody's house and placing a camera surreptitiously is not legal unless you have the consent of the owner of the house. And then it, there's all kinds of rules, so we're, we're not going to talk about that. I just want to make sure that uh, uh, people that are listening do not get the wrong idea.
2: Right. Exactly. Yes. We're we're talking about when is it legal to do eavesdropping. For the for the purpose of um, well, really, what I got into in the article was about when it's good for when you can do eavesdropping for purposes of child custody investigations. So okay, so let's let's talk about that. Yeah,
1: sure. Talk about so that.
2: frequently we get requests to do uh, child custody cases where I'll get a call from a mother who's concerned that her child is being um, abused or neglected in some way or another and a lot of times the the requests we get but that I get will be about whether we can record uh put a recording device on their apparel and their backpack record their conversations and um you know whether that would be breaking the law or not mm-hmm. and uh, Most investigators will have their their answer at the ready as far as whether they can do that or not. It goes back to that one-party state or two-party state thing. If you're living in a two-party state, the first thing you're going to say is, is no, you can't record a conversation unless everybody consents to it.
1: Hmm. Uh, Okay.
2: And if you're in a one-party state, then there is some wiggle room, but traditionally the answer would be no, too, because if you're recording, you're stashing a a recording device in your child's backpack or or wherever and you're trying to record a conversation that you yourself aren't a part of and nobody's consented to well that would break the one party rule too because nobody has consented that's zero parties consenting but what i found was that there is a an exemption or a uh there's a rule that, that, in fact, you can be allowed to record certain conversations when nobody, in fact, has consented. Now, there's a lot of criteria you have to meet. This doesn't mean that you can just go out and start recording people's conversations without anybody knowing, but there is something called the vicarious consent exception. Which,
1: and what is that? You know,
2: it basically means that you can consent to a recording on behalf of your child, if your child can't consent for himself, so if you're if you have a, m- a minor and he's not capable of consenting to a recorded conversation, and you think that it's in his best interest for his safety, his or her safety, you can consent on behalf of your child. Record the conversation your child is having with an adult or whoever, as long as you basically you're the one consenting on behalf of your child. Your child won't know that the conversation is being recorded and neither will the other adult. So
3: mm-hmm. on the
2: face of it, it sounds like it's breaking the the one party rule because nobody's consented. But in fact, as a parent, you're vicariously consenting for the recording on behalf of your child. And Interesting. And that is deemed uh, lawful. So I've, I discovered this first in a, in a case in New York uh people versus betel menti and this was in 2016 so a real recent case
3: mhm and
2: and as i said earlier new york is a one party state so somebody in the conversation should be aware that the conversation is being recorded if you're going to record one okay and what happened with this case if you would want me to get into it i can uh,
1: yeah I'll go yeah please basic, i think the example is a good one uh this one
2: it was back in about 2008 where it started, and there was a husband and wife, I believe, who had split up. They had a child together, and the father had some suspicions that his child wasn't being treated right. When he had custodial visits of the, the kid, the kid would would cry and refuse to go back to, to his home with his mother, and his mother was staying with a with a boyfriend. Okay, And what happened was, at one point, the father was making phone calls to the mother's, the, the wife's uh, cell phone. It was a cell phone to cell phone phone call. He made several calls trying to reach his, his, uh, his ex-wife, and she wasn't picking up the phone. But he kept trying to call, and eventually the call got through. I don't know exactly how it happened. But what's clear is it was inadvertent, though. The ex-wife did not mean to answer the call, but mm-hmm. she did. So she didn't say hello or, you know, what's going on, how are you doing, anything like that. It just answered it the just call. It just connected. No,
1: yeah, the phone just connected.
2: Yeah, it just connected. So he, he's listening in to what's going on in the room at her end, at her apartment, but she has no idea he's listening. Mm. And what he hears is... His son in the background, he hears the ex-wife and her boyfriend you know, making threats to the son and and basically threatening to beat him up and, and all sorts of stuff you, you wouldn't want to hear as a father.
3: Mm-hmm. So what
2: he does is he starts recording the conversation, even though nobody knows he's listening and nobody knows he's recording and nobody has consented to any of this. Right. So he starts recording, and he, and he keeps all this. He doesn't actually bring it to the police right away. What happens is a short time later, a landlord calls the police on, on the couple for some abuse she's heard. She's overheard some the ex-wife uh, and, uh, and the boyfriend, you know, saying some abusive stuff. And, and the police get called, and eventually the father provides his recording of that conversation he, he had obtained. And this goes to trial, and the defendant tries to say that, you know, you can't, you can't use this recording in court because we have a one-party state, and nobody mm-hmm. has consented to this recording. Right. And basically, the, the court decides that, no, somebody did consent. The father consented. He consented on behalf of the son. Uh, and yeah. he had to meet. Two basic criteria for this to be considered vicarious consent: um, basically, the father had to show that he uh, had good faith belief that the recording of the conversation, which his son was party to, was necessary to serve the son's best interest,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and two, that the father that the, that the reason was objectively uh, that the father had an objective reason. For this belief. So he can't just say, record a conversation, and say, yeah, I thought it was for uh, the well being of my child. There actually has to be a good reason behind it. And when you meet those two criteria, uh, the court decided that that can be a lawful conversation, a lawful recording of the conversation. And, 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 the, the, uh,
1: and the child would have had to be present uh, yes. when they're making these threats or whatever they're doing on the other end of the phone. Yes, correct. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So um, that's actually, I mean, you can see for sure how common sense would tell you if you're the father on the other end of the line, oh, my gosh, what's happening to my son? So, I mean, any, I think, reasonable parent would probably Take the take the action his father did, regardless of what they believe yeah. would be the outcome. Right? Certainly, I would certainly yeah. recording
2: the conversation. I, I wonder a little bit about his judgment for not going to the police right away with it, but recording it. Yeah, I would. Uh, I think that most of us would would at least record the conversation. And of and of course his his recording it met the two criteria: the having a good faith belief that. Uh, the recording of the conversation uh, served his son's best interest, and in that mm-hmm. there is an objectively reasonable basis for that belief are met. So the 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 court uh, decided to uphold the evidence and, and and use it against the the defendant. There,
1: I see. Okay, and and so and then you found uh, some more examples too of of a similar situation.
2: Yeah, so that one was in New York. There was another one in in Texas, um, Almada versus State of Texas. This one was a little different. So this one, okay, the mother, there's a a mother who had a a 12-year-old daughter, and she had a, a man move in with her, Almada, and he moved in and stayed in her apartment with her for a little while, and eventually was either kicked out or left on his own. And after he left, the mother suspected that her 12-year-old daughter was still having conversations with him, okay. and she didn't uh, she didn't want him to have conversations. She told her daughter, "You know, you can't keep talking to this guy unless uh, you know unless I'm present. Don't talk to him unless I'm around." And uh, she suspected that her daughter was, in fact, still having conversations with him behind her back. So what she did was she put a recording device on her own phone to record all conversations, ingoing and outgoing, that came into her house. Okay. And what she found out was, well, she got over 15 hours of recorded conversation between her daughter and this Almada guy. And in some of the conversations, there was sexually explicit uh, conversations and discussions about moving in together and they were going to have a baby. And, and this is a 12-year-old girl, so she take it, took it to the police.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, he was charged, I believe, with aggravated sexual assault. And in Texas, at this time, there was no vicarious consent exception. There was nothing, no precedent and nothing on the uh, statutes for it. Okay. So the defendant, Elmada, he, he argued, one, that there is no vicarious consent exception so that these recorded conversations of his should not be allowed in court. And two, the mother had stated that she was not, Recording the conversations because she thought there was a sexual relationship between the two. She had made that clear to the court, to the police, that she had no idea that there was, you know, a relationship between her daughter and uh, Almada.
1: So she she was arguing. So she hadn't suspected a sexual relationship. She just didn't want them to be talking.
2: Right, and that's what his argument was, that she didn't have a reasonable basis to record a conversation because she didn't have any suspicion that there was a sexual relationship going on. Mm -hmm. So those were his two arguments he took to the court to try to get the evidence suppressed. But the court said for the first part of it, for the vicarious consent part, they said that although the statutes don't specifically say that there's a vicarious consent, they do say that one party is allowed to consent. This is a one-party state in Texas.
3: Mm-hmm. They
2: said that federal statutes and uh, case law, as well as other states, have, have uh, shown that consent can indeed be granted vicariously through a parent. So it doesn't have to say specifically in the statute that there is a vicarious consent exception. We can read right into it that there is one, meaning we want one person to consent. A child can can consent. Um, the consent can come vicariously through the parent. So they threw basically his first argument out and set precedent for vicarious consent in Texas. The second point, where he argued that she didn't know, didn't have a suspicion of their sexual behavior, they said, well. She wasn't aware of the sexual behavior, but she was looking out for the safety of her child.
3: Mm -hmm. Apparently,
2: this guy, while he was living with them, had taken this 12-year-old girl out in a car and let her drive around and do all sorts of, you know, dangerous Mm -hmm. behavior. So, even though she didn't know, the mother didn't know that there was a sexual relationship between the two. She was looking out for the safety of her daughter, and that alone met. Uh, you know, the criteria that she was looking out for the best interest of her child, and objectively.
1: Okay, so had she suspected there was uh, a sexual component, uh, that would have been a game changer because then it's a crime, and she could have legitimately um, recorded it because it was a crime, correct? Well, actually...
2: There, the state, the state of Texas, said that she, it didn't have to be a crime. It just had to be that she was looking out for the best interest of her child.
1: Right. No, I understand and that, that, her but, child but was in it, danger. But had it so, been they a actually
2: crime. allowed the recording to go through.
1: Right. But had it been a crime, there wouldn't have been even a question about it.
2: Right. Sure.
1: Yeah. yeah
2: so then he wouldn't have had that argument. But they they took his argument out anyway. Okay. So. They sided with the, the state on
1: this one. Well, you know that's and it's great that the court is doing that because uh, I I can see how a good attorney uh, representing either one of these either one of these people could make that argument and it, I'm certainly glad the court's listening and taking the safety of the child in consideration before um, before are Representation by the attorneys—it's great, right? And and it has
2: for for investigators who who take on these child custody cases, it, it matters a great deal. Um, it's another tool in our arsenal. If you're in a one-party state where you don't have to have that knee-jerk response when somebody asks you if you can record a conversation, you can you can tell them you know you can look into it further and find out you know will this will this meet the vicarious consent exception requirements? Does it, uh, you know, is recording of this conversation going to be uh, for the best interest of the child? And is, is there an objectively reasonable belief for this?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, mm-hmm.
1: No, it's really good. And uh, as I told you offline when we first started, uh, started the show today, Jared, is I, um, Personally, I had never heard of this vicarious exception before. Um, maybe I'd heard about it in a different term, but I hadn't heard about it in this way. And uh, I, think it's, I think it's great that you put this forward to educate all of us.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, I, the, the purpose was, I, I hope nobody, I've never been confused as an authority on any subject, and I'm certainly not one here. Uh, so I don't want people to hear this interview and then think that uh, they have a good idea right off the bat of when they can record a conversation. These rules mm-hmm. are different for every jurisdiction or state, and I picked and chose uh, case law as I went along, but uh, and well, case and law I, is always changing. So I just wanted to put this notion kind of out there yeah. on people's radar so to prevent them from like a knee-jerk response to the question instead of just saying no right off the bat. Now hopefully they they can consider whether it is uh, a candidate for the vicarious consent exception when they get a request for a recorded conversation.
1: Absolutely, and a cautionary note uh, that we always have to verify um, the laws and what we're doing to make sure that we're, that we're meeting all the requirements. Um, you can't really accept, can't any longer accept a blanket law because there's all kinds of exceptions <laughs> So, that really is a good cautionary note. So, you have another case, though, um, out of New York. Why don't you talk about that one a little bit? Uh, yeah, I think that's State
3: versus
2: Christensen. No, wait. That one was Washington. Uh, People versus Clark was out of New York. Um, this one involved a an autistic child who had trouble communicating And uh, I don't know all the details of this one other than the mother was concerned because that autistic child was coming home with unexplained bruises and marks on his body. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And what she did was she put a recording device in his backpack to find out what was going on. Uh, And basically she discovered abuse and wanted to use her recordings to, to prosecute. And, and that, and when they actually, this one, when they, when they tried the the guy, the, the guy, uh, the defendant, he won in court initially. And he won saying that nobody had consented to the recorded conversation. So hmm. the the mother put the the recording in the backpack. Nobody knew that she was recording this conversation. She wasn't a part of the conversation. It was just her child and, and uh, the abuser. And when he got taken to court, he said, listen, you need one party consent in this state. And nobody consented. And they sided with him at first. But it, the state appealed. And the state won the appeal on the vicarious consent exception to the rule they stated that that sh- that the mother had vicariously consented for the recording on behalf of her child it was interesting in this decision though is that they kind of added a third at least when i read it i i read a third criteria that they added they didn't just say that you need a good faith belief that the recorded conversation is in the best interest of the child in a, an objectively reasonable basis for that belief, but they also added a third part, which is that the the minor can't be able to consent on his or her own behalf. Uh, hmm.
3: And in, in words, this case...
2: It's pos- of- it, it, yeah. yeah it, it, it's possible that a minor could consent on his or her own behalf, in which case... There would be no need for a vicarious consent, and there would be no uh, the exception wouldn't apply. However, in this case, because the child is autistic and and didn't have the capability to consent to the recording, they said mm-hmm. that the uh, the exception did apply, and and the, the lower case court was overturned.
1: Now, um, Jared, in the other two cases, um, was there any uh, did you see any discussion of age like for instance if the child had been a teenager and had had the ability to consent themselves would that made a difference
2: or do you know uh, this, this case here that we were just talking about people versus clark is where that where i saw that the most where it, it, it might have been in the other cases i didn't i didn't pick it out except for in this one where they dispel that notion right away. If the child mm-hmm. is old enough where, you know, just because the child is a minor doesn't give them the right to have the consent um, produced vicariously through their parent. They have to, you know, have the the lack of the ability to consent on their own behalf. So the mother really, mother or father really has to be doing this on behalf of their child when the child mm-hmm. can't do it on their own.
1: Yeah. If so the child that can do be- it on
2: their own, then it wouldn't apply.
1: Right, so that would be one thing—just not to assume that it applies to all minors, but to check that out. They have the ability exactly. to to give consent or not. So, and you mentioned a Washington case. What about that one, the Christensen case?
2: Uh, yeah, that one. I, I added uh, when I was doing the research. I, I Christensen is an example of when the vicarious consent didn't apply where it lost in court and this is because this was in Washington and at least at the time of this case uh, it was a two-party state uh, which basically two party state where I should probably say is kind of a misnomer it's they say it's a two- party state it's all party state everybody in a conversation has to consent to the conversation not just two mm. parties
3: mm-hmm. so
2: if there's four or five people having a conversation all of them have to consent to the recording not just two
1: but that's we talked about the party state. Yeah, that's a
2: good um, distinction. So in state versus christensen, uh, christensen there, there was a purse robbery and the police suspected this guy christensen of doing the purse robbery and further they believed christensen's girlfriend Lacey, who was a minor was uh, she, they believed that christensen had stashed the purse in her room so Lacey's mom gave permission for the police to look for the purse. They didn't find the purse. But later that day, Christensen calls Lacey, his girlfriend, and the mom picks up. And what she does is she gives the phone to Lacey and then goes on another phone and puts on a speakerphone and starts, she didn't record the conversation, but she would started writing notes and listening to the conversation. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, and he, during the conversation mentioned some, um, incriminating stuff. I think he mentioned that he knew where the purse was and, and the mother took this information to the police, the police charged him and Christensen argued that this was illegal eavesdropping and because neither he nor Lacey had consented to the, to the mother listening and taking notes on the conversation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: no there's a there's a couple problems with this one if you're trying to use the vicarious consent uh, mm-hmm. the first is you'd have to argue that she was listening in on the conversation to show to for the child for the child's safety for Lacey's safety and that's mm-hmm. kind of a stretch- stretch here um, but the other point it never really got there because the court threw it out right away this argument of vicarious consent because Washington is this two-party state, and they said, you know, our state legislators have express, expressly um, dictated that we want everybody in a conversation to consent, and there is no exception for uh, vicarious consent or any other one-party consent. So they threw it right out up based on that.
1: You know, that's really interesting because I would suspect that, the majority of parents would make the assumption that if their child is on the phone, they have the right to listen to that conversation.
2: Right. And, and maybe they have the right to listen. Uh, Maybe, you know, go ahead and do it if if you want, but if you think you're going to record it and then bring it to court and use it as evidence in a criminal matter, that's, that's a different story.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I guess it's the same thing as uh, you know, privacy on looking at your, your kid's Facebook account or or checking their cell phone or and doing anything like that. <laughs> we're, we're really restricted right. on a lot of privacy issues. Yeah, we certainly are. Yeah. Sure. Oh well, that's um, that's really interesting. I'm surprised. Uh, i was surprised they threw it out. So nothing happened regarding locating the the purse.
2: Well, I, I assume they got the right guy, but they just couldn't, uh, <laughs> they couldn't uh, press, I don't, I don't, I think he got proceed. away because of the the lack of a two-party state rule or the lack of a vicarious consent rule in a yeah. two-party state.
1: So, Jared, have you, um, have you used this vicarious um, consent issue with custody cases?
2: I had one case where, that got me started on this whole research into the matter, where uh a, a woman was worried about the safety of her child it, um a, a disabled child as well actually and we were getting ready to, to uh to to do some recorded conversations but we looked into it real thorough you know you want to make sure that you're meeting all both those major criteria that the statutes have laid out or actually the case law has laid out and we were going through it, and we actually ended up coming up with a different plan, and uh, we didn't do it. So, but the what research did I, I did on it just got me going further and further. I kept doing more and more research, and I thought it was a good, uh, good topic to share with other investigators. And,
1: mm-hmm. and and what did you in that case? What did you do instead?
2: She, well, she she had a, a court order where she felt that her ex-husband was violating a, a court order where he wasn't allowed to leave the child alone with, uh, with the parents, with his parents. Let me, let me say it again. So his ex-husband had a court order saying that, you know, when you are watching the child, you have to watch him and he can't be unsupervised. He can't be left alone with your parents and you have to be with him at all times. And she knew mm-hmm. he was violating that, and uh, that was the route she wanted to go in. Instead of recording the conversation, poop, he was violating those terms.
1: Interesting. And, you know, what, what comes to mind is what we might want to mention is that uh, video recording, as long as there isn't sound, is perfectly fine. Correct. For, exa- yes. for example, if you had a an elder person in a home that you thought was being abused or a a child that was being abused. If you had a nanny cam, for example, that was recording the, uh, what was the physical actions that where there is no audio or no recording, then that doesn't come under the same requirements. Correct.
2: Just make sure that it's not recording sound. It's only recording video and not not audio.
1: Right. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's you know, it's complicated. It's very complicated when you're trying to um, when you're trying to protect others. I, I often think that that's when there's a child custody cases. It's usually so um, adversarial that it doesn't look like one person is trying to protect the other. It's usually it looks like they're just trying to 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 get back at them for whatever reason. <laughs>
2: Sure, they're just trying to throw mud at each other, but,
1: it's exactly, but then you it's hear about these
2: other cases where, you know, there's real abuse that's happening and one person's desperately just trying to protect their
1: child. Yeah, yeah, and, for sure. And, um, so when you get a call from a client, what kinds of questions do you ask them to, to get to the place where you might do something like this? You might use this tactic. Yeah, you
2: you gotta you want to know everything. You want to know it, it's not gonna it's not gonna come out in usually the first conversation. You're gonna want to know what the what the situation is. Are the, is this a, for a court proceeding? You know, are they are they just trying to throw mud? Just trying to get bad bad stuff they can post on Facebook or or wherever, or just trying to show their parents that this person's not a good parent, or are they really trying to win custody of their child? Are they really looking out for the safety of their child? Um, and if they are, my, my first instinct is to avoid the recording of the conversation. If you can prove using other means, and that's usually the, the better way to go. And then you don't have to worry about whether uh, you're violating the vicarious consent exception or the one-party rule, the two-party rule. If you can show that the, the father or mother is a bad parent, in another way, then that's usually the way to go. Yeah. If, okay. it, in a lot of these cases, the only thing to do is to uh, to get a recording in there. Yeah,
1: you think as about, a last. Like this, yeah.
2: This lady with the in uh, People versus Clark, where she had her autistic child. What do you do? Your your child's uh-huh. coming home with bruises, and you don't know what to do.
1: hmm Right. Yeah. That's no. It's uh. It's a good. It's a good process. I'm really glad that you shared it with us, Jared. Uh, we are, we're actually at the end of our hour, but this, was, uh, this is very, uh, very important information, and I really appreciate it.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Uh,
1: absolutely. Uh, and for the rest of you, uh, thank you to uh, my s- sponsors, uh, my very faithful sponsors, PI Magazine. And tune in again next week to P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.
0: You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.